0: A lot of this novel is inspired by my sister and in a sense I like to see it as a love letter to my sister. So I like to think of perhaps some of the gifts that she's given me I can now pass on, which is lovely for me as well.
1: Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now let's relax on the convo couch. Chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. This one is a little bit of a mashup between a heart of writing, craft of writing, and new release episode. Today I'm going to be talking to debut author Hannah Bent about her heart wrenching and heartwarming book, When Things Are Alive, They Hum. Hannah was born and raised in Hong Kong. She completed her Bachelor of Arts in Fine Art, Film and Photography from Central St. Martin's School of Art and Design in London. She undertook postgraduate study in both directing and screenwriting at the Australian Film and Television and Radio School and has a Master's in Creative Writing from the University of Technology in Sydney. Hannah was the 2013 recipient of the Ray Copp Young Writers Award And I'm pretty sure, but I will check this with Hannah, that that is where she started to develop or at least to work on uh, her manuscript for When Things Are Alive, They Hum. She is also one of the first authors to be published by a brand new publishing house set up in Sydney last year, Ultimo Press. I've recently finished reading When Things Are Alive, They Hum, and I have to say, I found it just so moving and just so beautifully written. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Hannah about it and seeing how she came to create this beautiful book. Hannah, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch, and you're coming to us all the way from Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's um, wonderful to be with you today.
1: Yeah, the wonders of Zoom. It's great. Well, first of all, congratulations on your beautiful novel, When Things Are Alive, They Hum. I've just recently finished reading it, and I found it so moving and so beautifully written and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about it and where it came from and how you came to create such a a beautiful piece of writing.
0: I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: I really did. But before we do that, you actually have quite a a deep history in the world of the creative arts. So I just wondered if you could give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself in terms of all your, your creative arts work and how that's led you into fiction writing.
0: Look, I I always um, loved writing. I I really, as a child, loved creative expression in all forms. And because I have a sister, Camilla, who has Down syndrome, growing up, I used to write her scripts that she would act in. So it's always been something that I have loved doing. I initially went to art school in London and I studied fine art and then went on to afters in Australia and studied screenwriting and um, directing. And for a while I was in the film industry. So I've had quite a diverse experience with different creative mediums and I think it's actually really inspired the way that I write I I feel my process is quite visual and I I take a lot of inspiration from paintings cinema photography and um, I see very visually when I write.
1: Wow that's a great blend isn't it to be able to draw all those different sort of disciplines together and to distill that down into a, a whole novel. I know you did a master's in creative writing as well didn't you?
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah, and and was that where this particular novel started or were you working on other things prior to this one?
0: No, I've actually been working on this novel for well over um, 10 years. It started, excuse me, while I was in London and I found just, it started in my my little notebook. I'd sit on on the bus going to, to art school every day and just write and so it's really been gestating for a long time and I feel the Masters was me really trying to, finesse the craft of writing and learn more about it and kind of become a better writer, I guess. For sure.
1: Actually, before we go any further, it might be an idea just to let everybody know about the story. What it-
0: so this, When Things Are Alive They Hum, is a story about two sisters, Marlowe and Harper. Harper has a congenital heart disorder and Down syndrome. And when she discovers she needs a life-saving heart transplant, but's denied one by the medical establishment, Marlo comes back from her studies overseas and, and they both go on this journey in search of a heart and it's written in alternating points of view and really Marlo's journey is, is a question of how far she'll go to save her sister.
1: It really is such an intricate relationship that the sisters share and it's set in, largely in Hong Kong partly in London for Marlowe. There is a strong autobiographical element in the novel, isn't there, Hannah? Uh, As you mentioned, your, your sister has Down syndrome and the character Harper in the novel has Down syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about how, I guess, that's the inspiration for the story, but then how then you morphed that really into fiction?
0: Mm, absolutely. Look, my sister Camilla has Down syndrome. We were very close growing up. Uh, she was vivacious and was a great performer and funny and just really the life and soul of the party. But when she was 16, she got encephalitis and she really overnight changed. And I lost, I found myself losing the sister that I knew. And without realizing it, I think I was processing my grief while I was writing. I write in a very intuitive way. I don't I don't plan out a plot. I write scenes and kind of try and piece them together a bit like a puzzle in the end. So it wasn't something that I consciously set out to do, but it was such a big part of my life, and especially over the last decade, that I'm not surprised it kind of worked itself into my work. Mm.
1: So, when you were setting out to write the novel, you know you said you wrote sort of fragments in your notebook when that started to form itself into a story, how conscious were you of making the characters either like yourself and your sister or not like yourself and your sister?
0: Um, it wasn't it wasn't really conscious like I would see them as they kind of fell onto the page I mean I'm nothing like Marlo I'm Mm. highly emotional and I've actually found her very difficult to write because she's so restrained and and tries to remain in control of her emotions so and my sister although she does resemble she does have some traits that my sister has she's not Camilla either so Mm. um, there is that distance in a sense between us but Having said that, obviously, this the, the themes grief and love, and you know, setting it in Hong Kong, that they're, they're very heavily autobiographical elements to the novel as well. Mm. Did you
1: find yourself at any time venturing? too close to reality and and having to pull
0: back? That's a good question. There were some scenes that I wrote actually that I took out that were based on some memories that I had of childhood with my sister and I didn't feel that it's a fine balance of what serves the story and what doesn't. And I edited those eventually because I didn't feel that they did serve the story. Mm. So, yeah, in a way I did have to be very careful as to how I dealt with the subject matter. I can imagine
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Harper and Marlowe? You know, you mentioned that Marlowe is quite a restrained character. She does keep her emotions very carefully in check and she has suffered loss previously. But she's also really an interesting character in that she is doing this PhD into the life cycle of a particular butterfly. So I was really fascinated by that aspect of the story and wondered how you came up with that part of Marlowe's history and backstory.
0: So the very first scene, without giving away too many spoilers, um, that I ever wrote was A Childhood Memory, which is in the novel where Marlow catches the butterfly. And, and from there I started noticing butterflies just reappearing and reappearing. Uh-huh. And, and Marlo obviously took more, more form. For me, I see her as the ying to Harper's yang. They are opposites, essentially. Marlowe is very rational and sees things through a much more scientific mind and Harper's much more heart and quite magical and whimsical and feels them through life. So I thought that they complemented each other nicely in the way that they helped each other transform and learn things about life that perhaps they needed to. The whole aspect of Butterflies was a great joy to write. I shadowed a entomologist at the sydney university for um, a while and i just loved it i mean you know go to all his bug meetings and hang out with him at the lab and you know that was fun a lot of fun and i loved researching the butterflies and i also found as i was writing that The symbolic element that they can represent in some cultures was really interesting too. I mean, they can represent the afterlife in Chinese cultures, two butterflies together symbolizes love. There's just um, so many lovely coincidences and patterns that I found while I was writing that I really enjoyed.
1: It's amazing, isn't it, when you find something in your writing that, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to write a scene about that or I'm going to develop that idea but then it just keeps coming up and coming back for you yeah, it's that absolutely. sort of synchronicity that happens isn't it yeah it's quite magical to watch yeah and as you say I think it added like a really interesting dimension to Marlo's character too because it was something that she was so passionate about but then of course she was very torn and again I don't want to give away spoilers but very torn because she has this, you know, need to be with her family at this particular time and leave her life in London. So I think it really did add that extra dimension to her too.
0: Thank you. I, I think that's an interesting point because I think particularly when you find yourself in a caring role in a family, whether someone has a disability or someone's sick, it, you know, it's really important to acknowledge your own needs. And Marlo definitely had her own life going on aside from this journey that she goes on with her sister. So, and that conflict was a very big part of, of the mm. Yeah,
1: for sure. One of the other aspects of the book that well, it's 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 a really big aspect, and you talked about it as a theme earlier, is this whole storyline and, and thematic development of grief in the novel. And it it's quite layered in the novel, actually, in terms of the girl's own family history and then what's happening with Harper. This whole idea too of of Marlowe having to watch and live through grief for somebody who is still alive. We've all experienced grief in various forms. But can you talk about how you developed that theme? And then how did you go actually about layering it the way you did through the story?
0: Look, I think the long gestation period was a huge part of it because I went through my own personal journey with grief. And I, I, when I started writing, I didn't realize that I was grieving. And so it led me to reading a lot about grief and to really exploring it in in my writing. I think living with grief is, is such a universal experience and it, it's so complex and nuanced for different people people at different times in their lives and you can grieve in so many different ways and for me especially while I was writing Harper I I started noticing this lovely relationship between grief and love and in my own life especially the, the depths of grief in some ways brought me to very deep experiences of love and and very sometimes very bittersweet looking perspective on looking at the world and and how everyday small things in, in everyday life can bring such joy. It made me much more aware of the beauty that I'm surrounded by. Mm.
1: We well, do do a beautiful job in the novel of balancing those things. I mean, there is that sort of tension all the way through the story of this Light and dark, and love and loss. I'm imagining when you get to the revision stage for something like this, as you say, you worked on it for quite a long time. um How did you go about balancing that? Did you find at any point that that the novel was getting too dark or too sad, and you had to consciously then
0: inject more light into it? How did that process work for you? Having having the character of Harper was a great point of. Of lightness for me, I also wanted to be very conscious of not falling into sentimentality or melodrama because I was exploring such big themes. and so for me, looking at language and and, and perhaps in the editing pr- uh, process, really looking at pairing back and, and killing a lot of my darlings um, <laughs> a huge part of, of this, so I think that's really how I tackled it. mm.
1: So you were saying Hannah that you wrote it in in fragments and over a long period of time and then of course you had a residency didn't you was that at Varuna? Yes it was. How did you find that experience?
0: Oh it was amazing I got to meet some amazing writers and that was the best part of it for me I just I've got connections now that I I really still cherish and and also it was just great having Oh, just time to write without interruption, and and without procrastination. I mean, mm-hmm. a beautiful room to 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 just sit down and let yourself kind of go in was just amazing. So I, I will forever cherish that experience. It must have been great. I, I know of
1: Varuna, of course. So I've never actually been there, so I'm kind of on my bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> so. Because you were writing it over a long period of time and kind of in fragments, I guess, how was the revision process for you? How did you actually go about tackling that and pulling it all together?
0: Um, I think it changed as I changed and as I changed my perspective on grief and what I was going through. I also had a really supportive writers group and it helped a with discipline because Mm. we gave ourselves deadlines every week and we would meet every weekend and kind of go through each other's work and discuss it, which was really lovely. And I think just having... That support psychologically did a lot for me, especially as I was dealing with such heavy, heavy themes. Time was a big one; just having the time to contemplate, pulling these threads together, and and accepting what I wanted to let go of and, and keep. And also, I, I worked by by mapping out the novel kind of on the floor, and occasionally sticking pieces on the wall, and just visually seeing it like that, and removing cards and shuffling them around. Mm. And, and that was a big one. So, yeah, there are lots of different things that I kind of drew on to get through the whole process.
1: The story, I guess, in itself, I'm just thinking of the bones of it, I guess, forms its own narrative. But was it a story that you had to really wrangle into a plot type shape in terms of finding those turning points and building to the climax and all that sort of thing? Because we have a lot of writers that listen to this show, obviously. So I'm just wondering from that point of view, you know, did you have to get it at some point and go, right, where is my plot and how am I going to bring that out?
0: You know, this is a really interesting question and I actually think my studies at film school helped me. Although I did not I, I, I did not want to follow the hero's journey formulaically. Mm. I did not want to write something that was driven in that way. It did influence the way that I worked and helped me shape my novel, particularly during the middle section. I found that was an area that I at times felt a bit lost in and um, kind of referring back to that and seeing how the bones of my plot were different and how they were similar helped me in some ways as well. Cinema also really helped me and just drawing upon scripts that I really love that have bittersweet endings, that's something that I always drive to or just been really influenced by as well. So I think those are the main things that helped me shape the plot. Mm-hmm.
1: And... When you got to the point where you thought, okay, this is done, <laughs> what did you do? I mean, you said you were using your writing group as beta readers along the way, but have you got like a trusted person that you'd give the whole thing to and say, tell me what you think?
0: Look, I had, I also went to the Faber Academy at Alan and Unwin, and that was I think in 2013, so it's quite a while ago. And at the end of that, I did a reading and I was really lucky because Gabby Mayer from Left Bank Literary, Was there and approached me afterwards. At the time, I didn't feel that the manuscript was ready, so I waited another ten years or something. (laughs) Um, And to be honest with you, the main driver for finishing it was that I was heavily pregnant and about to give birth, and I I really felt like I needed to kind of deliver one baby before I had the next. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I did, and I sent it to Gabby, and things just took off from there.
1: Yeah, well, that's a pretty good deadline, isn't it, having having it's a baby? A <laughs> <laughs> so are you the first author to be published by Ultimo Press? I know you're among the first, but I wondered if you were the first novel to be published. Mm-hmm. That's so exciting. It must have been amazing for you to actually, you know, sign a contract with a brand new
0: publisher like that. How did that feel? You know, what What was really exciting for me was primarily being able to work with Alex Craig from the beginning she really understood the work and I felt like I could totally trust her and I've learned so much from her and I feel so privileged to have been able to work with her the whole team at Ultimate Press has been amazing I love what they stand for they're innovative they are daring they are really I think at the forefront of Australian publishing and I, I just yeah I feel very lucky that they were Interested in my work mm-hmm. it's a
1: very exciting time isn't it to have a, a brand new press here and to have new novels coming out it's great mm-hmm. how has your family reacted to the to the novel and to the story that you've written Hannah
0: oh I have a very loving and supportive family so I think they're relieved that it's finally finished <laughs> <laughs> I think they kind of for a while were wondering what the hell was going on in my room for all these years but most mostly my sister Camilla it's she's lost a lot of her speech so she can't express herself but I've mm. been reading Uh, A lot of the novel to her and I can see that she does pick up on some things and it and she is quite delighted by certain aspects of the book and I I think at times she can see herself in it which is a great joy and I think she when I wrote um, the Sydney Morning Herald piece it was lovely for her she came to me she said I'm famous now (laughs) yeah it's my family have just been very supportive I've been very lucky that's great. Yeah,
1: it was lovely to read that article actually in the Sydney Morning Herald and to see the photo of you with uh, Camilla and just to see, you know, where the stories come from. I think it's a, it's a lovely inspiration for the story, even though it's obviously then a fictional story. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What do you think has been the biggest challenge in getting to this point where you are now with the book actually out?
0: To be honest, the biggest challenge was letting it go because I'm, I feel I'm quite a perfectionist and especially when you work on something so, for so long, you, there's this feeling like I could just keep on changing it and I could have kept on just going and trying to finesse it. And, you know, I really hit a point where I was like, enough, like just it's done just let it go and it's been so wonderful to see the reception that it's had so far and that's very heartwarming and a lot of this novel is inspired by my sister and in a sense I like to see it as a love letter to my sister so I like to think of perhaps some of the gifts that she's given me I can now pass on which is lovely for me as well that's such a beautiful way to think about it
1: it's really gorgeous and what about in terms of, I guess, what would be the greatest, well, maybe that's it, the greatest joy for you in having the book out in the world?
0: Yeah, I think that that I've been able to express something in my life that has been very meaningful to me, my relationship with my sister. And growing up, I felt there weren't enough books that dealt with this relationship, sibling relationship in this way, that wasn't stereotypical. And I feel that it can be such a nuanced relationship. For example, you know, I'd read a lot about siblings of someone who has a disability being neglected and um, not getting enough attention growing up. And that just wasn't my experience. And I don't think it's everyone's experience. And I think it's really important, for me to have been able to express something with more complexity. So that that was one big thing as well.
1: That is a really beautiful part of the story, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that. I love that it was definitely a, a two-way relationship all the way through the story. I mean, there were there were times where, you know, one character was sort of more in need than the other, but there was this beautiful equality between the two sisters. That, as you say, it, it works against that stereotype of when there is a disabled member in the family that they're constantly in need of attention and everybody is doing everything for them. And you know, Harper gave so much back to Marlo and to and to her family that it was beautiful to see that at work in that family situation.
0: I'm so glad you you saw that. Thank you. Mm.
1: One thing I did want to ask you about, Hannah, actually, and that's just reminded me of it, I hadn't written it down as a question, and you mentioned this when you talked about the book, so it's not essentially a spoiler, is that the problem of discrimination against people with disabilities in terms of receiving medical treatment, is that something that you had experienced in in your own family with your sister or is it something that you've come come up with through research?
0: It's both. When my sister was born my, she had a very small trachea and doctors actually at the time said to my mum, you know, there's no point in treating her, you know, she lives with this disability, let her go, Mm. got a very serious infection. So, you know, that was a long time ago. And I, I know that things have changed a lot since then, but she does, she did encounter a lot of this kind of discrimination growing up, medical discrimination, But this issue of adults living with Down syndrome being denied transplants is actually uh, a very current one and was one of the main inspirations for writing this book. I remember the first article I read about a young child being denied a heart transplant in England because of her disability. And that that really spurred, I thought it raised really interesting ethical questions and kind of spurred the plot a little bit for me. I'm not a lawyer and I have to say everything I, I know has come from research that I've done and things are, things are changing. In Hong Kong, particularly, there is no specific legislation that protects adults medically, especially in a transplant setting. However, I do know of or recently read a case of a young lady named Charlotte Woodward in the U.S., who is, she had a successful heart transplant and she's now working other groups to advocate a change in federal legislation that will protect adults who have a disability. So, you know, things are changing, but Mm. it's definitely something that my family experienced, particularly my mum and my dad and my sister growing
1: up. It's really important to shine a light on that. And you've done that that so well. What sort of feedback have you had from other families living with, with someone with a disability?
0: I think a lot of the feedback has been gratitude around looking at ability rather than disability mm-hmm. and how perhaps a adult who lives with a disability is capable of having a life much like anybody else. They're capable of getting married if they want, holding down a job, expressing their feelings and opinions and should have the right to be heard. So at this point, that's the main feedback I've been getting. Having said that, I don't want to diminish the experience of families living with people who have a disability that are slightly lower on the spectrum or have higher needs. Mm. Because I know that particularly now as my sister's had encephalitis and um, it's a difficult situation, I know that it it's not something to gloss over. Mm. It is such a wide
1: spectrum, isn't it? And, you know, I, I love the way that you show Harper so, you know, We mentioned Shakespeare earlier and, and of course, she she references Shakespeare quite a bit and the fact that she's actually a writer. I thought that was such a beautiful addition to the storyline, her writing.
0: Well, Shakespeare was actually something that my sister loved growing up. She did a lot of plays and she was Juliet in a play, so that that is slightly autobiographical.
1: Did she enjoy writing or was that a, a fictional creation that you've come up with?
0: The writing is more fictional. My sister was definitely more a performer. She wanted mm. to be on stage, mm. not behind the camera. Okay. <laughs> in <terms of> it. <laughs>
1: yeah, but the this story that she writes, you know, that develops throughout the storyline. I'm not going to give it away. It's so beautiful, and I think it's a lovely way for that character to be able to express how she's really feeling, because that's a big issue in the book, isn't it? That her feelings need to be considered.
0: Absolutely. and Thank you for pointing that out. It was, you know, I think I was struggling with my inability to help my sister reclaim her voice because I mean, she, she, she lost so much of her speech. So while I was writing, I think perhaps subconsciously, I really wanted to make sure that Harper had her own voice. And even if it wasn't listened to, that she had opportunities to have agency and make her own decisions mm. or at least rest them. Which she does
1: so beautifully. This is your first novel, even though you have been working on it for a long time and, you know, we were talking about your extensive work in creative arts. But what do you think is the most important thing that you've learned from this process about the craft of writing?
0: To trust yourself. And and this can sometimes be the danger with going to courses and and doing degrees is you you get a lot of feedback. And for me it was about being able to discern what, was useful and what wasn't and and being able to trust myself i literally went around in a circle at one point i started with this idea and i went really far away from it and then i came back to it so for me yeah it was really just trusting the story and trusting my own voice and what i what i wanted to say and the, the process that it took by itself i perhaps if i hadn't interfered so much with it and questioned it a lot it would have been done a lot quicker
1: mm. Do you think that's a necessary part of the process, though? That questioning and and that you know looking for outside assistance, I guess that we do when we go to courses and things. But then, as you say, coming back to what you actually hold inside and what's true for you.
0: Absolutely, I, I learn a huge amount, and particularly when it came to editing and and also reading reading so broadly, which was a wonderful aspect of these courses because I was exposed to literature that I hadn't known about before this so I do think kind of venturing out and then come that that whole journey venturing out and coming back was Mm. vital yes because I guess
1: you sort of take on board what works for you don't you and then filter the rest out but as you say it takes some time to do that
0: it does and I think you know I, I was very young when I started and having confidence as well was really important part of the journey too. yeah building that confidence
1: So I guess that brings me to almost the last question, but are you working on something else and in terms of a novel or or fictional writing? And how do you feel about going into that or being in that next stage of what they call the second novel syndrome?
0: Yeah, I'm conscious of the second novel syndrome. I I find because I've had a child a year ago, I, I find now I'm much more efficient with my time. I don't have long to write and I'm sleep deprived half the time. So what comes out is it comes out quickly and I'm not kind of second guessing it as much as I did the first time. Although I don't know how long this, this novel's going to take. Well, I hope, I hope not, not another 10 years, but I, I am working on a second novel and it's centering more around the female journey and mother-daughter relationships. Right.
1: I mean, you're always learning and you continue to learn with each book, but that first novel is a massive learning curve, isn't it? So it stands to reason it would probably take longer than the
0: rest. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to not advocate going on writing courses. I think they're amazing and I had learned so much. I don't I don't want to discourage anyone from doing mm. that. Uh, so, and I'm still learning and I love learning. So it's, I think it's an important part of the process. So you were saying, Hannah, you're doing a lot of your
1: promotional uh, work for the book online. How are you finding that?
0: First, it was a bit jarring because I haven't really met anybody. As soon as the book was released, we were heavily in lockdown and all the kind of pre-publishing events were cancelled. So and it was a bit disappointing at first, but I found uh, the online community has been so supportive and I'm I'm very technically challenged, but I'm learning to get my head around zoom and all these other it's it's been nice also to be able to you know i'm in hong kong and i can still talk to you and and kind of meet you virtually so that aspect has been really lovely yeah and
1: i think you know writers and readers are all getting used to doing more things online and and i guess the beauty of it is if you live in a regional area for instance and there is normally an event in the city if it's online then you can actually attend it but but I do think we're all very keen to get back to some live events at some point <laughs> that <would be> nice. <laughs> well it's been so lovely chatting to you Hannah and as I said I, I loved the book I thought you've just done such a beautiful job I really hope that you know it gets into the hands of lots of readers well,
0: that's so lovely and a real compliment coming from you so thank you
1: I'm sure that it will so where could people find you online Hannah
0: I'm on Instagram at Hannah Bent underscore author. I've got a website at HannahBent.com. So those are the main ports of call, I think. Mm.
1: And are you more channelling your energies? I mean, obviously you've got a, a young one as well that's going to be taking up a fair bit of time. Are you channelling most of your creative energy at the moment into the fiction writing or have you got other projects on the go?
0: Okay, I, I was actually working on a non-fiction um, project which is kind of morphing into more fiction now so yeah i'm kind of in an intermediate space with that looking at my journey with endometriosis so yeah that's kind of where i'm at with that
1: mm. and actually i highly recommend people have a look at your website too because you've got some really interesting articles and clips and videos and things on there that i really enjoyed you know just finding out about different elements of your life and different things that you've written about.
0: Thank you. I think it needs a little bit of an update. (laughs) (laughs) It's a constant battle, isn't
1: it, trying to keep it all updated. (laughs) Well, all the best with your second novel, Hannah. Can't wait to read it. No pressure, but, you know, and and hope everything in Hong Kong gets back to normal for you guys pretty soon as well. Thanks so
0: much. It's lovely to be on on the show today. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page, Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.